and to get feedback from patients who even in their darkest hours or even after they've lost their loved one are still so incredibly grateful to us um, as organisations. I think that is what helps our commitment. Welcome to a new episode of the Terranostic Talks. My name is Gustav Vider, and together with me in the studio, I have the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome, Annette. Thank you, Gustav. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you today? Great, thank you. Looking forward to uh, the talk right now. Yes, it's a new talk today. But first, it's uh, episode nine, and this is the uh season final for uh, terragnostic talks we have now done nine episodes of terragnostic talks yes. what do you think of that yes time to, uh, time to celebrate this together yeah, with to simone Leiden. yes simone Leiden is our guest today who is simone Leiden? i mean she's a fantastic person starting up the unicorn foundation and never Endo uh, endocrine cancer in australia fantastic hmm Interesting to talk to more uh, to her. Actually, she was the she reached out to us and yeah. uh, and uh, want to tell us tell us about uh, her experience with with this patient groups uh, and so on. Yeah, I really want to thank her for just that. And also, this is the key thing for us. This is in the heart of of this pod. I would say, if we can help patients to get a better life and a longer life, then I'm very happy. Yes, for sure. Uh, should we go just for the presentation? We do. Take it away. Simone Leyden started Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia, former Unicorn Foundation, with her brother John in 2009. Their sister Kate was at this time struggling with a rare GI cancer. Since Kate passed away, their mission has always been to raise awareness of NETS because what struck them along the way was that there was a huge difference in treatment and support for less common cancers compared to more common ones. Instead of dwelling on their loss, they've been working tirelessly to make a difference by driving research and studies, raise funds and awareness. Good to have you with us, Simone, in Sweden right now. It's summer. How is it in Australia? Not too bad today. We've got actually quite a crisp uh, sunny day and I've even been able to take the dog for a walk along the beach, so I am not complaining. Hmm. Good. Uh, you told us, uh, this is recorded in June, uh, you told us that you are in a lockdown now. Uh, how's the situation? Uh, look, it's it's just apparently a snap lockdown or what they're calling a circuit lockdown here in um, Melbourne, in Victoria. Um, so the rest of the country is actually doing quite well. For some reason, we just uh, got to keep on getting on top of it here and hopefully it won't last too much longer. But again, as a, as a country and a, as even a state, regardless, even though we've done it a bit hard, we haven't done it anywhere near as hard as our friends and colleagues in the rest of the world. So we, we have to be grateful for that. In 2009, 12 years ago, you and your brother John started Unicorn Foundation, today Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia. Uh, your sister Kate was struggling with neuroendocrine tumors and died the year after, 34 years old. Uh, what for this journey made you and your family so committed and eager to make a difference for these patients? 
Oh, thank you. And thank you for, for having me. Um, it, it was, it was something that we, we really felt very passionate about. Um, I think the, the faced with such inequity, um, for a cancer that particularly wasn't, had very low awareness and also didn't have the information, the resources, the support services, everything that we were seeing around Kate um, and around, you know, if she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer or anything like that, we really saw that there was nothing available in relation to those, you know, sort of wraparound services that were were for her. So we said, uh, my brother being a doctor, were, gave us a big advantage because he was able to look at how to navigate the system, how to talk to pharmaceutical companies, how to write to politicians to access um, drugs and and to also see who would be the best specialist to see because we're talking about 2009 and whilst ENETS had sort of just started, um, you know, there was not really the groundswell that we have now, which we're really so excited about. But at the time, she she took the opportunity because we had the means and the ability to go overseas. She went and saw Richard Warner, Dr. Richard Warner in the States. She actually saw Shallowberg and she saw um, a lot of the doctors now that we, we speak to a lot. Um, um, but what she actually found was uh, right on our own doorstep was Peter McCallum and she was under the care then of Professor Rod Hicks and Dr. Michael Michael. Um, and I guess we saw then, again, how can we connect patients once they're diagnosed? Let's not let them have to go all around the world to find something actually, you know, very close by. How can we, you know, ensure that they have these clearer pathways, but also have access to information? I mean, information, when you're diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, like neuroendocrine cancer, information is key. And without the information and, and really correct information, not going on to Dr. Google, not doing those things is so incredibly important um, because it really changes your journey and it also really changes the patient outcomes. And so some of the key things we set up was not only ensuring that patients didn't feel like that they were the only ones, despite it being what we would now call less common rather than rare per se, um, they're not the only ones. There are people out there like like them. And I think that that's really isolating when they're told, oh, I've never seen this before. Oh, I don't know what to do with you. So really ensuring that they had supportive care. So we set up a website um, as, as, as you do in 2009. And, and some of the key things that we wanted to get there was some support groups set up. Um, even again, our, our necessary evil of Facebook, we set up a Facebook group so that people could connect to each other through there. Um, but also set up a registry of doctors and specialists so that when you were, you found that you had had, you were diagnosed with this, you could actually see who meet, met that criteria. And we would, that's, continually grown over the time um, around Australia and around the globe. And really interestingly, as we were setting up in 2009, um, there was other groups setting up if they had, you know, pretty much a year or two before or, or, or a little bit after um, around the around the globe. And, and we're grateful to Nevadas who actually contacted all of us around the globe and brought us together um, for what was originally World Net Cancer Day, coming up with awareness because awareness was always key that has now evolved into the International Neuroendocrine Cancer Alliance. So 
it was all happening around those, you know, that time of 2009. And for us, the, the foundation was growing as our sister was getting sicker and so yes sadly she was able to to come to the launch of the of the organization and we had a big gala ball um but did lose her battle unfortunately not that long after a few months later so it's a story that um it is all too familiar for everybody um but it's also in my family we also have von Hippolindau, the familial um sort of a part of neuroendocrine cancer as well and so it's been just a bit more of a, it's been a real driver for us. Um, not, it's moved beyond us, my sister's legacy. It was always going to be my sister's legacy, but it's now an organisation that we have, um, well, four staff, but uh, we would like a lot more. Um, uh, a specialist telehealth nurses, we have, um, we fund research, we do all sorts of um, uh advocacy work which we will go into especially around theranostics which is such a key part of that but it's really been it's been a labor of love and it as like other patient organizations that we deal with you know it, it comes from somebody who's been affected affected and who could see that you know that real desire to change that inequity and and to try and put neuroendocrine cancer up there with some of the more common cancers because every every life is important and that's been really our, our driving force. You are now moving, you said that you're not calling it uh, rare anymore, you're ca calling it less common. What do you mean? Is there a... It, it, look, there actually is sort of a definition. I think, you know, here in Australia, it's um, there's been a huge focus, which we're really happy about, um, especially at a, a federal government level on rare and less common cancers. So rare, I think, ca is categorised between, you know, one and six per hundred thousand, whereas less common is around, you know, that seven to 12. Um, and unfortunately and i think it, it it's a global it's a global um problem is we don't have really clear incidence um rates of neuroendocrine cancers obviously there's the arguments around icd coding there's all sorts of things that have really made barriers and i think also because neuroendocrine tumors fall in so many different organs and potentially are uh, diagnosed by not necessarily net specialists, it they, the the coding is probably underestimated. I think um, uh, definitely. So we've been doing some work here in Australia, and I, and I think because we've always had to rely on SEER data or US um, uh, publications on what the incidence is that puts it at around seven per hundred thousand. Um, We've been doing some work here and, and, you know, according to our Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, we had approximately 4,900 um, people, Australians, diagnosed with neuroendocrine tumours last year. If you put that into perspective of pancreatic, pancreatic was about 3,700. Um, uh, ovarian was about 3,000, uh, sorry, 1,500, so about 70% more than ovarian cancer. But those cancers obviously are household names, whereas neuroendocrine cancer is not a household name. The other statistics that, that we've been looking at, which I think is really interesting, is, you know, yeah, in your lifetime you have a, approximately about a 1 in 144 chance of developing a brain tumour. However, you have about a one in 54 chance of developing a neuroendocrine tumour. So 
again, it's these sort of statistics that we're trying to get out, especially to our policymakers who um, provide the funding and the research dollars and, 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 and to also to industry to try and get a bit more interest in this space. Granted, it's a very difficult disease and we know it's very um, it's, it's diverse. Uh, the great, it's got so many different gradings and so many different aspects to it, not just the, the JEPNETs, but also, you know, our FEOs and PARAs and that sort of thing. But it is a very much a space that whilst we think the incidence is on the rise, most likely because of the incredible imaging that we have now, um, we do think there's a huge area that um, has probably been underestimated, that's for sure. And I think um, so whilst I guess that we've been concerned being put in the bucket of rare because people go, oh, well, they are, it's never going to affect me. So I think it's legitimately more that it's less common um, so it's not your breast cancer or it's not your prostate cancer. However, it is a cancer that has significant numbers and should get significant interest and in investment as well. And uh, as you were talking about breast cancer, I, I have a citation here from you. If you develop an uncommon cancer such as NETS, as we're talking about now, you have only 40% chance of surviving five years compared with 90% chance of surviving five years with breast cancer. Can you elaborate? The Absolutely. And I think, look, even I think even since I probably wrote that, um, the, the, it, has, it has improved. So we, we are part of a lot of different um, uh, alliances. And so we fall in what would be categorised as a low survival, a low survival category. Um, so anything below 50% is categorised as low survival. So I think now, and again, I'm going off our, our government um, statistics, it's around 48% for all neuroendocrine tumours. So I'm glad to see it's increased a little bit. Um, and it's around 95% now for breast cancer. So I think what, we're, what we try to obviously, you know, just get out there is that we, you know, back in the day, breast cancer was probably around those statistics as well. You know, only 50% chance of surviving five years. but with with collaboration, with focus, with targeted research and investment in that, as well as awareness and early screening and everything that goes with improving those outcomes, that's how you can get up to those those higher percentages. And I think that's what we're really trying to drive with neuroendocrine tumours. For us, early diagnosis is a huge factor. Um, unfortunately, we've just recently We've done some research here in Australia, but we've also done um, research with INCA. So as I mentioned, the International Neuroendocrine Cancer Alliance, and that we did a survey of, uh, of uh, about nearly three and a half thousand people across the globe around survey of challenges to access to diagnostics and treatments. And one of those key things that we were asking about is who actually diagnoses these, these tumours. And it does still fall to your general practitioner or your primary health care, but Unfortunately, because the symptoms are quite mimic the common common symptoms such as irritable bowel syndrome or asthma or flushing, um, they are misdiagnosed for uh, on average five plus years. So you can imagine that by the time they're diagnosed, we are seeing a lot of patients with 
um, metastatic disease. In some cases, you know, over 50 to 60% of patients that have got stage four. So whilst we actually are in a position now to say to patients, look, stage four, whilst in other cancers is quite scary, stage four for, for you is not a death sentence. It's actually very manageable and it more depends on the grade of your tumour of grade one, two or three. Um, it's still we're, we really are desperate to try and get those figures down. We want those year, the years to diagnosis to to within one or two. I mean, the the golden, uh, you know, the the golden uh, the gold at the end of the rainbow would be to have a screening tool. And we know that we have um, blood tests and we we've got great imaging, but we really need those GPs to actually suspect that it could be a neuroendocrine tumour if these patients are presenting to them in so many times. So unfortunately, like breast cancer where a lump shows, we don't have those visible signs with the neuroendocrine tumour. And so that's where these diagnoses get, get missed. So I think that... So what, you can, what can you do? Uh, can you train doctors or uh, what do you do with information? Absolutely. We've looked at all sorts of different things that we can do. And, and I think it, it the GPs are very responsive to it. And I think they, they actually want to work with um, organisations like ours because they don't want to misdiagnose people. They didn't go into to medicine to do that. So last year, as we were in, in lockdown, we, um, we actually developed the first uh, Royal Australian College of GPs um, accredited online modules. So that's actually 40 CPD points or category one. And so that actually is a third of their triennium um, requirements. And it's been, we've seen a really great uptake of that. So that's about, it's a, it's a four hour uh, course. And I think it's a little bit more than that, but we had a great multidisciplinary steering committee. So we had nuclear medicine. So it, it talks about the NETA1 trial. It talks about control nets. It talks about imaging. Um, it then talks about obviously what symptoms to look for, but it also has case studies around nutrition and living with this disease because this really neuroendocrine cancer has become a chronic disease with patients living longer um, and relying on that primary health care much more. So that's what we've done at a, at a national level and we're looking to try and see what we can do at, at an international level and, and getting this accredited around the globe or doing a, a different sort of version but still really getting to the primary diagnosticians um, being GPs or primary healthcare and gastroenterologists because the gastros are the ones that the GPs are sending them to but potentially the gastros are not picking it up either or suspecting it either. So really it's about trying to get um, these patients to once to, to oncologists as well um, to, to get these proper scans. What do you think need more need to be done so this net patients are are there getting their diagnose uh, earlier? Is it is it a problem with access to healthcare? Of course, this could be something in Australia. We're talking global. We have different situation in Europe and US and Australia, of course, with the healthcare system. But do we need uh, like more uh, centers with uh, advanced care or? Absolutely. I think, look, I think even just from the very, very start, it's awareness. The awareness still is so incredibly low with primary health. I think it, I think 
collectively once a patient has actually been diagnosed and I am probably being I'm very being very selective here knowing that Europe has good care North America um, and and Asia Pacific um, and I know that you know the um, emerging economies you know have have very difficult with again that was that came out of our scan data I think that the and the and the medical societies that are actually being formed you know we've got China Chinet, we've got J Japan we've got Asia Pacific we've got North America we've got Commonwealth we've got a lot of the great medical societies so I think and and predominantly these centers of excellence now as well I still think the patients are being diagnosed too late um, and so that really comes up as a, as a huge awareness um, issue. It's difficult with neuroendocrine tumours when you've got 50% men, 50% women. Um, and when a man, I guess when a woman uh, presents with flushing, that could be menopause. When a man presents with flushing, you know, is that rosacea? You know, it's it's so difficult. But I think that a really targeted campaign and a targeted approach at a government level, along with the patient organisations, could really improve the awareness um, and plus that education of that primary health. And What about the patient then, the patient, him or herself, in the middle? What, what can the patient do as a part? It, the patient, we really empower them to be their own advocate. Um, we really empower them to, or to, to ask the questions if they're not satisfied to get second opinions. You know, they, they're not going to offend anybody by asking for a second opinion. I think the, the tide is turning in, you know, over the years in that we have huge respect, no doubt, for, for our clinicians and for our specialists. However, I think access to internet and access to, to Facebook and, you know, talking to people all around the globe, seeing what patients have here and patients have there, has had the ability to empower patients to ask more questions and to um, advocate for themselves to get access, especially to imaging that they think that they should be getting because the as we all know and, and this being a Theranostics um podcast the imaging is not just for diagnosis but it's for ongoing management um, of our patients it's actually for some patients it's actually their treatment because they're on watch and wait or they're 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 stable so the imaging is literally their only connection to their specialists so where we have great access for to that here in Australia I think you know there's a lot of work that needs to be done elsewhere to change that mindset that that is actually part of the treatment and, and so important for the treatment and patients need to be able to ask for that but it also needs to be affordable um, you know again here in Australia we we have a universal healthcare system um, but there's always still barriers and there's also still education needed around the incredible you know the, the the cost savings and the life saved by investing in imaging that could actually um, have a flow-on effect and and change or stop unnecessary interventions and that sort of thing. And I think that that there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, around the around the world in ensuring that that imaging is made not just as a diagnosis, but actually in the ongoing management of patients, which is and vital. What are, yes, and and yes, I absolutely agree with that. And what is the key three things to do that? I mean. Yes, to talk about it, raise awareness, or what are the steps to, to make this? Access to multidisciplinary teams, 
access to scanning, radio pharmaceuticals, um, clinical trials, but also what we've done and what we're pushing for government funding because we've funded it through industry um, and our own fundraising is this large-scale observational study. So we've, we have in our five states this what we've called the National Neuroendocrine Registry or PLANET and we actually have a patient reported outcome app that goes into that registry. So whilst patients might not see their clinician all the time, they're able to record their quality of life and they're able to, in the community, talk about their symptom controls and that sort of thing. And that data is all being fed into the registry. So how we feel that registry could work and, and could be utilised by government as this innovative model of care is one big clinical trial especially for radiopharmaceuticals. So whilst it's it, it sort of in the absence of these big phase three trials that we have in, in, in a smaller patient population, this registry could actually really act as collecting that real-world evidence and real-world data that could assist with submissions or assist with registrations. Um, but uh, that really tangible real-world evidence, I think, is, is key. How far is it uh, before you can use it for applications, do you see? I, look, I don't think far. I mean, obviously, if someone had told me a few years ago, oh, yeah, no, do a registry, they're really successful. They are really hard work. Um, but I think it's because you can build it, but it's about, you know, ensuring that the data is inputted. So we're really... We worked with the e-research department at um, Melbourne University um, who actually also run the ANZAT uh, clinical, the tumour um, registry as well. And it's a web-based registry and it actually sort of works alongside whatever the hospital registry is. So it's de-identified into our registry. So what's great about that is that it's been able to adapt to whatever data software is, is used at, let's face it, we all know there's not universal data software at all hospitals. So it's been able to align with whatever that one is being used. So we have about, I think, close to 3,000 data patients in there at the moment. Um, we were looking at a retrospective study for a submission um, for an industry partner. I think it's been difficult because of the way we've done out the dictionary. It, certain data points weren't collected and it, it has been quite difficult. But what we're actually now proposing is a prospective study um, for that. And so starting from now, but also putting in the PROMs, uh, the patient reported outcomes into that as well and making it a really meaningful piece and hopefully a publication. We ideally would like to do that by the end of the year. So that would be our first sort of prospective study that would really assist submissions and, registra and registrations. Um, and that's a really exciting thing. And I think, you know, it's, it's how long is a piece of string that this registry and app could actually work for industry um, and for all sorts of clinical trials because it it's collecting the data as we speak now. So ideally what we see the you know in, in the future and hopefully not in the too distant future is being able to rec recruit clinical trials through this. So we all know that you know clinical trials are difficult especially in this patient size are difficult to recruit to. Um, this registry can identify the patients um, and then if they are actually in the app, it will send them a notification to say, 
you've been identified as, as a, a potential for candidate for a clinical trial. Your doctor will talk to you about that at your next um, at your next meeting, um, which is which is really revolutionary, and I think something that we really are, are, are excited about. The, the possibility of that. But again, it needs funding and, and we've really pushed that as part of this innovative model of care for government funding because with that, data is king and they will be able to really see the benefits of that as well. Cool. Uh, can you tell about the, the, the app, the app? You talked about the app. Yeah. So the patient, they can have an app in their phone uh, and use it every day or what is the idea of that? Absolutely. So the app is only accessible. It's in the App Store. Uh, sorry, the Apple. It's an iOS and, and a, um, a Google. Um, so you can, you can actually see it there. It's called Planet, but you can only actually access the app with your de-identified code. So the code is given to the patient by their clinician. So it's just um, automated out of the, the registry. Um, it's either emailed to the patient or obviously through COVID, we were able to get consent changed. And, you know, we were happy that um, ethics were very nimble in, in changing things. So instead of face-to-face, -face, we were able to get that emailed to patients. So they would then they consent. So by putting their code in, they go through and they consent into the app. So the app has the EORTC, um, uh, uh, what's that? The, the, so the 51 questions, but the EORTC 31 and the GI Net 20. Um, I've probably got those numbers wrong, but so it's 51 questions for the quality of life. And then we have the Bristol Stool Scale. Um, which is really important for our patients. You know, obviously bowel movements and are debilitating often for our patients. Um, we have ECOG, so really looking at their ability to, to function and potentially go on a clinical trial and also their vitals. So we, we had so many different workshops and that sort of thing and, and obviously this was designed with patients but we needed validated tools. This was going to be a research, we wanted it as a research tool. There's a lot of apps that record uh, you know, diaries or thing, different like food diaries and that sort of thing. This was really, we wanted it to drive research and tangible research. So we needed those validated tools as part of that. So we have guidelines as to, you know, if you're on PRT, um, we, we would say, you know, you would fill it out once a month or if you're in active treatment, you'd fill it out however many times. So we have guidelines around that that we worked with the clinicians. What was important and with the vitals, for instance, at one stage we actually had um, uh, different things in there that we thought, oh, that's this is only one-way communication. So it's patients putting their data into the, the registry. We had concerns that, you know, if it wasn't picked up and they were going through, um, you know, a heart attack or anything like that, we really, we, we wanted to ensure that patients knew that it was actually just for, for research. Um, but what we've seen, and this is the really exciting thing, and, and I definitely, um, what we've seen at, at definitely within the multidisciplinary team at Peter Mac, is that the patient data is being looked at to re within the MDTs to guide the treatment um, and to, to guide the treatment pathway. So they they can see the fatigue, they can see um, the, the the symptoms, um, and that is exactly how we wanted it to work. We really wanted this 
because we know patients go into a, a meeting with their clinician and they're like, oh, no, I'm fine. I've been feeling great. And and then the, the partner will say or the, the carer will t go to the nurse later on and say, they haven't got off the toilet for a week. They haven't been able to leave the house. They haven't, you know. So what the app has been really successful so far and we know it's got so much more potential is cutting out that communication that, that 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 miscommunication so now a clinician can say how are you feeling uh, have you been feeling for the last week and they can get up live all the data that the patient's been putting in and they can say oh look you've had you know lots of fatigue or you've had a lot of pain over here how you know talk to me about that so that I think will just have huge bonuses for patients long term and this is this is a journey long term for our clinicians and our patients. They have very much long term relationships. And I think um, having the ability to ensure that that communication is really clear is going to just really improve those outcomes for, for the patients. So that's part of the app. And I think what's exciting is, again, when we've got patients on PRT, um, sometimes combination therapies, all outside of a clinical trial, we're able to collect this really rich and important data to influence potential trials or even, again, you know, look at um, how they can actually help with, with reimbursement and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. Very cool. important for the future. Yeah. And yeah. what? two questions. What are you most proud of to have achieved here? I can understand it's difficult because you have done so much. Um, I think, look, there, there is so much. I think you know, we only have to hear the feedback from patients to to know, you know, that we we're doing okay, which is which is nice. Um, I think our telehealth support service, our specialist nurse service, is is um, world class, um, and I think we're we're really proud of that. We're proud of getting the control what next. does it mean what uh, tell more about that the telehealth nurse so we have only one specialist nurse again we're out fighting for more funding um and she pretty much last year i think we had about 1500 contact points through that 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 service which for one person i uh, we're trying to hold it all together that's for sure at the moment so um that again as a it's a referral it's a it's a ability for our nurse to um, be sort of hold a patient's hand from diagnosis to the point where they get to a specialist and to the point where they don't need us anymore um, and we're really proud of the the ability to be able to provide that service but also just how grateful the patients are to to have that because if they especially if they're in regional areas um, they don't have access to their centers of excellence all the time they might only see them once in a blue moon um, they're, they're being seen by regional um, country oncologists or and who may not be up to speed um, having that access to a specialist nurse on the phone um, has or on the email is, has been an actual lifesaver for a lot of patients. And we've done a lot of education, nurse education. Only recently um, 
I, we also have an incredible project officer who's, again, uh, Meredith, who's an oncology nurse as well and, and had a specialty in NETS. Um, she's, she runs all of our education. So she does in-services to nurses. She um, only recently put together a special interest group of nuclear medicine nurses and because they were crying out for, for resources and to have their own group where they could share stories and knowledge and, and that's been, and that's across Australia and New Zealand and we're really proud of that. Um, we're really proud of getting patients together and being able to support each other and that peer-to-peer -peer support is just it takes your breath away about how supportive they are of each other, which is which is beautiful. Um, we're really proud of once it's done is we're ha um, hosting a Theranostics roundtable um, in Canberra, so in our in our state capital um, in August, and we're bringing together Ansto, our industry friends. Um, our academics, so interesting, Louise Emmett and Rod Hicks are both on that steering committee. Um, so really looking at, you know, what's happening in prostate, the learning from the experience of neuro, what's been happening in, in NETS and learning from that, not actually pushing that aside, but really learning from that and bringing together all our HTA um, partners, but also Cancer Australia, the, the government um, body who's really interested in this area as well, because they see this as what's going to be coming in the future. So we need different PRT, we need combination therapies. And I think we're really excited about some of the work that, you know, Dr. Grace Kong and Rod Hicks are doing with, um, with PARP. Um, and and PRT combinations. We want to see things around immunotherapy and and PRT. Um, what else? What's the future? And because we know it stops working, and we know it's it's not curative. We want it to be able to be worked in combination with other things to be curative. And I guess I probably won't be too proud until we are at that point where we we have that universal access. We have earlier diagnosis and and um, patient organisations like ourselves and NetRF in the States who, are, who fund so much research and such great research, you know, patient organisations like ours can work with government to fund this research, not necessarily having to fundraise and, and do it ourselves. And I think, you know, we'll all be proud when we actually improve, you know, patients' lives and improve that 48% five-year survival to up to the 90%, you know, that, that, then I'll be able to sleep at night, maybe. Your sister got diagnosed in 2005. Since then, uh, what has happened? Uh, or do you, do you see an improvement there or a change in the, the care of nets? Oh, look, I absolutely see improvements. And, and as I said, you know, when, when Kate was diagnosed, when she Googled it, there was no patient organisations here in Australia and, and there was nothing for her. And she probably thought that she was the only one in Australia. She was one in, you know, 25 million. Um, so she relied on on looking at, at things in, in the United States, which obviously everything's different. So whilst we, you know, are still fighting for our cure, I think what we have seen is such a wealth of knowledge on the treatments that are available and especially, you know, my sister had access to PRT. Um, potentially, if she was diagnosed now, we we know more about PRT. We know more about how to administer it, the dosage, um, 
and that's really been driven by these these pioneers you know uh, for us here like rod and 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 our others at the other centers of really um personalizing it and keeping our patients i know that sounds terrible but keeping our patients in a relatively good quality of life until we get that next thing um and that's what i how i feel with patients as well is whilst my sister really passed away unfortunately within that five years um and she had a mixture of high grade low grade you know at the time we weren't re we didn't really know and now i think we know so much more um but if we can keep our patients relative in, in in a good quality of life which is the most important thing with in the absence of a cure if we can have a decent quality of life for our patients that they can live relatively normally um see their children grow up um you know walk their walk their daughters but down the aisle if we can actually enable that i think that is where you know we we we're trying to function now until we have that cure so i think the difference would be that there's a lot there's a lot more awareness a lot more collaboration and now even a lot more industry interest in this space and i think that's a really exciting thing um and so for people who were diagnosed in 2005 it'll be a lot different in 2021 fantastic and about your uh, commitment simona uh, reading about you and now talking to your you and this fantastic energy um i mean how key is the commitment to succeed oh look i think commitment is absolutely key and for me you know i'm in the position where i'm not a patient myself um i am a i've been a carer and still a carer so i've had the ability to to not let the the disease sort of stop my functioning every day and I, and I that's why I'm so in awe of the patient organizations that are run by patients themselves who not only deal with all the the, the treatments and the issues that the disease brings but also really advocate for other people and we are an incredible community i believe um and you know we've got neuroendocrine cancer uk with kathy who's also a founder you know we we're a really tight-knit community we all support each other i've actually got a meeting with inca this evening um we support each other we share knowledge we share that and i think that really drives us um and i i think in the end our commitment is driven by the fact that we are actually making real change and to get feedback from patients who even in their darkest hours or even after they've lost their loved one are still so incredibly grateful to us um, as organizations i think that is what helps our commitment and i think sometimes yeah there's been times you've wanted to walk away and there's times when you go i just you know can't keep on hitting my head against a brick wall but when you get some positive response from a patient you know that's where you it drives you even that bit further so yeah mm. great uh, this is the diagnostic talks uh podcast so we need to ask you who do you think should receive the nobel prize for their efforts in diagnostics 
Oh, goodness. So, you know, in the absence of me being scientific in any way, I came from a marketing background. Um, so the, so I probably would be a very bad judge on the, on, on the panel. Um, if I was, and again, my experience has only probably been the, the you know, the, the last, the last 15 years, but, and I've met some incredible people along the way and, and, you know, especially the exposure to the ENETS uh, group has always been so welcoming and inviting and they've always had patients at their centre, but so too has have all the medical societies. So if I could change it around and rather than a Nobel Prize but a Nobel, Nobel Prize for patient, a patient prize, um, in, in my biased opinion, it would be, you know, one of our pioneers here and that is Rod Hicks. He goes over and above for his patients. Um, he is a volunteer with Inca. He's, a, he's on the ENETS advisory. He's a He's on our board. He dedicates time outside, but he also dedicates so much time to ensuring that the patient is reassured of what treatment they're having, of that they're, they're fully involved, fully, fully informed, and just the outcomes of that is just so... Um, incredible for for their for their journey and so bias that I am I would probably say as a Nobel patient prize uh that would be Professor Rod Hicks. Wow fantastic. Uh, Who do you think we should invite uh to the podcast? Oh wow that's that is a a bit of a difficult one because I mean I again we just quite a few of the people that I work with all the time, like Chris from Telix and and, uh, and so on, I think, you know, we've, we've spoken to. But I'm really excited about some of the things that Clarity is doing um, with the copper um, uh, trials that they're doing because that really looks like it will be a real Theranostics uh, uh project oh and sorry research if you like with the imaging um and then the treatment availability so so yeah i think um some of the guys there at, at clarity and what they're doing and and the trials that they're running at the moment i think would be really interesting and i biasly i would like to hear about that so that's, that's probably why i'd put that forward cool sounds great thank you simone thank you for your time thank you and your story been an honor i really appreciate it and good luck with uh, all the things you have going on that's fantastic and so important thank you so much take care take, take care. care yes annette simone Leiden. what do you think about today's oh, episode fantastic energy and and wow no wonder they have succeeded or she has succeeded with the, the yeah. foundation hmm so interesting, you know, because you have this family tragedy uh, and, and you turn that to a, like a lifetime commitment to, to make a difference, to make a difference for patients and, and not, not just to, you know, start an organization. They do, they, they have <laughs> built an app and they have uh, found uh, trials and they, 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 re- they really do the job as a pa- you know patient foundation. I, I've, I'm, I'm, it's incredible. Mm. Leading the way for a, for a future, fantastic. Yeah, cool. Uh, should we f- close today's podcast? I think it's a good idea. 
Yes, we need to mention that this is uh, the last episode of this first season. We will take a short break in July and we will be back in August with a new episode of the Terragnostic Talk. Uh, and during this time, you can do like Simone did. You can email us at uh, podcast at samnordic.se, podcast at samnordic.se, or visit us on, on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you for today, Annette. Thank you. Stay safe. Stay tuned. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>